If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From the Falklands to North America to the American subcontinent, British and French soldiers spent much of the 18th century locked in battle. Yet while the Anglo-French relationship was apparently defined by war, behind the scenes, a number of influential thinkers were attempting to establish an entente between the two nations, an agreement that would establish lucrative trading opportunities in the nation's growing empires. In conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, John Shovlin, the author of Trading with the Enemy, Britain, France and the 18th Century Quest for a Peaceful World Order, describes the attempts to reset the dial on Anglo-French relations. John, the the relationship between Britain and France over the course of the 18th century was turbulent, to say the least. Uh, The nation, two nations came to blows in conflicts ranging from the War of the Spanish Succession and the Seven Years' War. The French famously supported the revolutionaries in the American War of Independence. And uh, there were flashpoints everywhere from the Indian subcontinent and the Falklands to modern-day Canada. But, and as you point out in your book, this period is often kind of described as a second Hundred Years' War. But, but your new book, Trading with the Enemy, tries to put a different spin on the Anglo-French relationship, doesn't it? it? It argues that alongside the intense rivalry, this is always a period, also a period of collaboration and economic cooperation between the two nations. And my first question is, why did you think this is a story that deserved to be told? I, I think it's a story that deserves to be told because that, that settled interpretation, that conventional view of the Franco-British relationship, is, 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 it's so long established. It's, it's almost a part of the furniture uh, in the way we think about the 18th century. And, and it's not that that story is, is wrong, but there's, a, there's another side to the Franco-British relationship, uh, which, we mo- which we know much, much less about. And I suppose I, I feel that history is often at its most compelling when it, um, when it unsettles uh, received stories, uh, when it asks us to you know, go back and look at the past again with, with new eyes. Uh, and see see new things uh, that 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 maybe cause us to 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 question uh, other stories as well. 
there, there are a couple of other reasons, I think, why this story was, was worth telling. Um, one is that uh, in trying to find an answer to the question, what is it that drove these various efforts on the part of the French and the British to reach an accommodation with one another, to, to, uh, to, to head off the next conflict? It, it really it really opened up a couple of other big stories uh, about the 18th century. Um, one is a story about empire, uh, the, the degree to which there's ambivalence about empire in this period, the degree to which there is doubt that empire uh, is a going concern, that it that it makes sense from an economic point of view. That was something I, I was unaware of, uh, and I, I was struck over and over again uh, at moments across the century uh, this this ambivalence about the imperial project. Uh, another big story that the book uh, opened out onto in really interesting ways was the story of free trade uh, in the 18th century. Uh, you know, we all we all know that free trade, you know, becomes a really uh, important economic idea in the 18th century. We have a sort of familiar story about why that is. Um, what I was seeing was a very different understanding of free trade than the sort of uh, liberal market-based idea that we're familiar with. Uh, and that the idea of free trade emerged as an important idea much, much earlier um, than, 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 than we think. And, and I suppose there's one, there's one final reason why I think the story is worth telling, uh, and, and, and that's because of the way that it reverberates in interesting ways with our own moment. Um, I think this is often the case in, in, in works of history. You know, we're, we're to some degree, we're, 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 writing, uh, we're writing the past in a way that helps us to make sense of the present uh, and maybe to anticipate the future. Uh, and it, it, it seems to me that w- we may be at an inflection point, a tipping point in our own world politics, the politics of trade, uh, that's going to produce a world that looks a lot more like that very conflict-prone 18th century than the relatively peaceful world we have lived in since 1945. And I think for, for that reason, this moment, these, this, these first stumbling attempts to work out the, the ground rules for an international trading order that would produce peace rather than conflict, that, that's a really interesting story for this moment. Sure. Now, before we look into the collaboration and economic cooperation in greater detail, I just wanted to set the scene a little bit. So give our listeners some background. Militarily, how intense was the rivalry between England and France from 1664 to 1787, the, the period that your book describes? And and, and what drove that rivalry? It's it's really a period of quite intense military and, and geopolitical uh, rivalry. I mean, let's say we take the dates 1688 to 1815, uh, which go a little bit beyond the scope of my book. Uh, in that period, France and Britain are, with, are at war with one another one year and two. Um, they go to war eight times uh, across this across this long 18th century. Um, and there's there's a lot of factors that are in play. Um, there is the protection of the Hanoverian succession uh, in Britain, which is sometimes threatened by France. Um, there's um, sort of ideological hostility, uh, which becomes particularly important in the 1790s. Um, th- there's sometimes a, a hint still of uh, religious suspicion uh, of a Protestant Catholic um, uh, conflict. Um, but I think that 
conflict over trade and over colonies is also really a key part of the story. Uh, and the reason it's a key part of the story is because uh, officials, ministers, politicians on both sides take it for granted that commerce is the principal source of power in the 18th century. So wh whatever your objectives are, whether it's to defeat the Jacobites, pr protect the Hanoverian succession, wh whatever your goals are, you need the power to execute on those goals. And that power comes from trade. Uh, this is what they all believe. Um, wh why do they think that way? Why, do, why, why are they so focused on trade, especially foreign trade, colonial trade? It's, it's uh, for, for a complex of reasons, uh, trade is what sustains the money supply in a period of hard currency, gold and silver currency. Trade generates all kinds of taxable transactions uh, for the state to, 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 uh, to raise revenues. Above all, trade is the source of the, of the money that states can borrow during war. This is a rivalry that is debt-funded from beginning to end. Um, all of these wars are fueled by debt. The money is mostly borrowed uh, from the only major source of liquidity in these old regime societies, and that's trade. So trade is fundamental to the capacity of states to, to wage war against one another in this period. And for that reason, it becomes central to all of their conflicts. I, I would say in the largest sense, the Franco-British conflict in this period is a struggle to prevent the other power from becoming a predominant power. Uh, with the, assum the assumption being that your security, your prosperity, your influence are necessarily going to be greatly diminished in a world where the other, where the other state is the top dog. So it's, it's essentially a defensive struggle to prevent that from happening on both sides. Uh, and trade becomes absolutely central uh, to that battle. And how much did... Um so the birth of the imperial age accelerate the rivalry between the two nations. The fact that there, there was these uh, emerging colonies all over the world that both were vying for. Yeah, it's it's very important. Um, the, these colonies, uh, and, and, and not necessarily just your own colonies, but... Um, territories that are opened up by other empires, say by Spain uh, in South America, they're seen as absolutely central to uh, the success of one's own trade. So, so let's talk about, about Spanish America for a moment. This is where nearly 90% of the world's silver is being produced in the 18th century. Silver is the basis of the money supply back in Europe. It's also the basis of um, East-West trade. Uh, it's silver that they're sending to, uh, to Asia in return for Indian textiles uh, and, and Chinese porcelains. So it's absolutely central to the world economy. So grabbing a piece of Spanish-American markets becomes, um, it, it becomes the central issue uh, between France and Britain in the early part of the 18th century. Um, as Spanish-America becomes somewhat less important economically, that, uh, that the sort of center of the rivalry is going to shift. It's going to shift to North America. It's going to shift to India. But these areas that have been opened up, uh, commercially exploited by um, various European empires, uh, absolutely because of their consequences for global trade, uh, become uh, you know, ma major bones of contention uh, in the Franco-British relationship. So... Into this arena step a, a, a series of politicians and thinkers who, who argued that the nations had a, a lot 
more to gain through cooperation and trade than they did purely from uh, from, from fighting on a battlefield. I mean, what what motivated this mindset? What what was the rationale behind this new way of looking at the Anglo-French relationship? What one key factor is concern about the financial blowback from war. So they're, they're, they're fighting all these wars. They're borrowing enormous sums of money to do it. So every war leaves in its wake a huge burden of debt. Uh, and and the, debt has, the debt, in their thinking, has all kinds of negative consequences. Uh, there, there's, there's the immediate prospect of a, of a credit crisis. Um, there's the possibility that high interest rates are going to uh, reduce the vitality of commerce. Um, there's the fact that uh, in order to finance these debts, uh, they have to raise taxes. So there's a heavy burden of taxation, uh, and it's increased after all of these wars. So the, the general concern is that the, the financial consequences of war are going to strangle the commercial vitality that the wars were fought to secure. So there's a, there's a feedback here, a negative feedback, and uh, an unintended consequence from fighting the wars that they're acutely aware of. And uh, winding that down, reducing this addiction to public debt is, is really central to thinking on, uh, on both sides. And, and the, the only way to do that in the long run is for France and Britain to stop fighting major wars against one another. France is the only country that's able to compete with Britain financially. Uh, it is fighting France that leads to these uh, huge debts in Britain and vice versa. So uh, the only way out of the debt problem uh, is uh, is some kind of accord where they can stay out of each other's way geopolitically. I, I would say there's there's one other factor as well that's that's of equal importance. There's a there's a strong feeling among many on both sides that if only they could keep the peace, uh, their own trade would benefit so much that they would either, um, they, they would be the winner in the long run, they would aggrandize themselves, or minimally that they'd be able to preserve some kind of balance of commercial power. That the, the argument here then is that war is something that makes it very hard to get on with it commercially. It tends to undermine the, the foundations of um, commercial vitality. So if we could just keep the peace for a while, we the French or we the British would emerge victorious in our long rivalry with the other side. Now, there, there are obviously uh, numerous proponents of greater understanding and trade links between the, the, the two nations. But I wanted to, to mention two, and that was Britain's first Prime Minister, Robert Walpole, who observed that peace was the safest and wisest conduct for the general interest of a trading people. And on the French side, there was Cardinal Fleury, now, how did these two go about attempting to change the dial on the relationship, and and, and how successful were they? The, you, you've described their positions very very well. Uh, that this is exactly Walpole's view. He says it over and over again when he's pressed by the parliamentary opposition. Uh, he says, "Peace is the best strategy for a trading nation. If we want to beat the French, and he's Walpole's very clear that he wants to beat the French, the way to beat the French is through peace and trade." Uh, so he's very insistent on that. Fleury has pretty much the same view, uh, and it's, wide, it's a view very widely shared in France, and, and indeed 
in the 1720s and 17, 1730s when, when Fleury is in power. This is a period of, of uh, very rapid uh, French uh, growth of trade, especially colonial trade. So it's a strategy that seems to be um, paying off uh, really well for, uh, for the French. Um, some of Walpole's critics say, you know, they point to this. They say, you know, peace favors France. Uh, if we want to, you know, your, your strategy, Walpole's strategy is, uh, is, 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 is not working. We need to find some way to redeal the cards uh, in order to assure our long-term security against uh, the prospect of um, a, a sort of a French uh, commercial supremacy. And the way that Walpole's critics um, suggest this might be done is essentially by uh, by breaking into the Spanish Empire in the Caribbean, seizing some key settlements there, and essentially using that to open a kind of uh, exclusive one-sided free trade from which British uh, commerce will benefit and from which the French uh, will be will be excluded. Um, so uh, this this uh, this conflict comes to a head between Walpole and his critics in the late 1730s, and uh, they the the, the, um, the the opposition, the self self styled patriot opposition, they get their way, they get their war with Spain, and they also manage to use that to push Walpole out of power eventually in 1743, because it's very hard to be prime minister uh, running a, a war effort when you were so opposed to the war starting in the first place. And did Fleury? meet similar opposition in France? Much less so. Um, There's a fair degree of consensus in France that the best way to handle Britain is by keeping the peace and growing your way to commercial supremacy. Where where Flochy meets opposition is there's a a long-standing Franco-Austrian rivalry and Flochi is very much for burying the hatchet. Um, he fights. He fights a short, very sort of tactical war against the Austrians in in the mid seventeen thirties, and then he makes a very generous peace with them, with the idea being this is this is the end of it, and from now on we're going to be we're, we're perhaps going to be partners in the future. There's a lot of opposition to that in France, uh, and that opposition eventually pushes Flochi into a into a war, the War of Austrian Succession in in uh, in seventeen forty. Um, so, but but it's a it's a different kind of opposition to the one that Walpole is facing because for for Flaherty, there there isn't that much disagreement on the idea of how you handle Britain and that peace is going to serve France best in that uh, in that context. Now that's quite interesting by the idea of how much centuries old anti English and anti French prejudice in the in the two nations played into this debate. I mean, did the two nations kind of regard one another as natural enemies? I mean, did they see that see war as a natural way of things? I, I would say that there is a, there's, a, there's an asymmetry there. Uh, the, the British do see the French as natural enemies. Uh, the French don't really. I mean, perhaps by the time you get into the 1790s, but here it's difficult to distinguish the propaganda of, um, of the radical revolution from what people actually think. There, there is a there is anglophobia or you know fear of the English or hostility to the English in France, but it's a very curious sentiment. It, it, it's it's sort of the flip side of the coin of anglophilia. 
the people who are most worried about Britain, the people who fear Britain the most, the people who are earliest to argue that Britain is the real threat to France, not Austria or some other state, they're, they're, they're kind of Anglophiles. They admire Britain. Um, they want to emulate Britain. They think France has to become more like Britain in order to defeat Britain. So French ang- uh, Anglophobia is very conflicted. Um, British Francophobia is much more straightforward. Uh, you know, there's a sense that, yes, this is, a, this is the old enemy, that they're completely untrustworthy, that it's their that um, they'll they'll backstab you every time. And, and there's a hint of uh, kind of an anti-Catholic uh, prejudice that's, you know, lur- lurks in the background here sometimes. Although something to be noted about Francophobia in a British context is that there's a kind of party political flavor to it. Um, it's, a much, it's much stronger among Whigs than it is among Tories. And in fact, you even have Tories like Lord Bolingbroke in the early 18th century who think... That if you could just um, if you could if you could just reduce the, the 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 political temperature with the French, if you could take the sting out of that um, hostility to the French, you would actually take a lot of the energy out of Whig politics. So he he's all for making um, a, a, a generous peace with the, with the French in 1713 at the end of the War of um, of Spanish Succession, and he, in, in fact he envisions an alliance in the future with France and Spain. And this is all part of a project of finally defeating the Whigs uh, in party politics and establishing a lasting uh, Tory hegemony in Parliament. Now, you said earlier that um, you know, the campaign for greater collaboration between the two countries faced a lot of opposition. But can you give us a couple of examples of successes, of, of, of ways it actually works on the ground? Probably the best example is the uh, is the free trade treaty that's signed in 1786 between uh, France and Britain shortly after the end of, of the American War, uh, and on on both sides this is seen as a way to remake the relationship, um, and, and you have to understand this against a background uh, the, the background of trade politics across the whole century. There's a kind of commercial cold war that goes on between France and Britain from the Glorious Revolution forward, where both sides are using tariff policy and and prohibitions, essentially to deliberately try to ruin the other's trade. So British goods are largely excluded from French markets. French markets face massive duties um, coming into Britain. Um, Now, of course, there's lots of smuggling uh, on on both sides. but the, the 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 free trade is, or excuse me, um, the absence of free trade is, is sort of one of the fundamental markers of the hostility between the two states. And people on both sides think that a freer trade between the two um, could could be the basis for a much more constructive relationship. They think if there were um, economic benefits to both sides from keeping the peace, uh, there would be disincentives for them to go to war in the future. So you, you see again and again and again across the century, people interested in a in a better relationship with the other side, seeing free trade as a foundation. You see it in 1713, where they actually sign a treaty, but it's then nixed by the House of Commons. You see it again in 1753, where they're talking about a treaty. 1773, they're talking again. And finally, in 1786, uh, they actually negotiate a, 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 a quite a generous treaty, um, 
it's not full free trade, but there is, uh, in comparison to what they had for the rest of the century, it's a massive step in that direction. Uh, and every, people on both sides are talking about it as the as a potential foundation uh, for maybe even partnership, um, because they uh, they're looking. Both states are looking at Eastern Europe and seeing the rise of new powers there, and they're worried about European stability. And they're beginning to argue, well, France and Britain actually might need to get together in order to stabilize Europe and to head off the next major conflict. So I think that's that's a major moment of triumph. Uh, for for uh, for these um, for these initiatives, although I, I'd have to say that m- you know many of these other attempts to transform the relationship were not successful. Still to come on the History Extra podcast, we seem to be at a point where there's a growing skepticism about that regime for organizing international trade, where privileged states, states that have massively benefited uh, over the last 70 years, are have become really skeptical. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Just to expand a bit on what you, you, you just said about free trade, I mean, as you point out in the book that behind all this is a a kind of a grand ideological debate between those who argue that capitalism is a force for peace and cooperation and those who contend that it kind of drives rivalry competition and ultimately war i mean how did this debate evolve in the 18th century and and on the evidence of what happened in the century can anyone be said to have won that debate uh i i I think we have misunderstood that debate in the 18th century. Um, to, to oversimplify just a, a little bit for the sake of clarity, I think I think we tell ourselves that this, that this is a, a debate between sort of warlike mercantilists and peace-loving, enlightened liberals. Uh, and that's just not the way it breaks down. If you look at the people on both sides who are interested in making a deal with the other side in order to pacify the the you know future the future relationship they are they're all people who think that commerce is a field of struggle between states that it's ineluctably so they have no time for the idea that you know leaving trade to the direction of free markets is going to you know produce maximum benefits for everybody they don't think that trade naturally leads to peace so the, the peacemakers on both sides are mercantilists, right? They're not, they're not the enlightened liberals that we, that we imagine them uh, to be. Uh, I, think we have, I think we've exaggerated the, the prevalence and the influence of that kind of liberal thinking 
uh, in the 18th century. Um, certainly we can find it, but I think we tend to read the sources a bit selectively and tell a story where we're, we're, we're it's essentially a backstory to the 19th century where we're trying to figure out where these ideas come from. And so we, we focus on, uh, on, we focus on texts that, you know, weren't necessarily read that way in the 18th century or weren't, weren't necessarily all that influential. When you focus on the officials, when you, when you focus on the people who are actually trying to manage competition between these um, commercial states, um, they're, they're, they're not liberals. Um, they're, they're, people who, uh, they're people who think that the state has to take a very active role in, uh, in uh, governing the commercial economy. And if you don't do that, you're not going to achieve the, the public good. You're not going to achieve the maximum benefit. They think that states are the principal actors in economic competition, the principal winners and losers, not firms or individuals or consumers. Um, they they are you know they are they are mercantilists, and, and I think one of the one of the things I'm trying to show here is that there is a major peace project that is embedded in 18th century mercantilism that we've missed. Now I want to turn to another the characters that appear in your book, and and that's a man called John Law, the son of an Edinburgh uh, goldsmith banker. Now, he was forced to flee England after killing a, a man in a duel. Um, can you describe the role he plays in Anglo-French relations in the 18th century? Sure. Um, Law, Law is a, he's a fascinating character. Uh, he... he um, so after killing this this man in a duel, he goes to Scotland for a while. Then after the Act of Union, he has to flee to the continent. He spends much, much of his adult life there, where he, he makes a living at first as a gambler and as a speculator on financial markets. He's a brilliant monetary theorist. He's one of the early theorists of paper money. And in 1716, he manages to convince the French regent, uh, the regent for the young Louis XV, uh, to let him open a bank in Paris that is going to circulate paper money in France. To make a long story short, uh, he ends up as French finance minister by 1719. Uh, he, uh, he, he actually pushes gold and silver briefly out of circulation as money, replacing them with paper money. Um, he establishes a huge company to monopolize all of French uh, colonial and uh, extra-European trade. And he tries to organize this consolidation of the French national debt. Now, what I mean by that is French national debt's huge at the end of the War of Spanish Succession. Um, the interest rates are high. So what Law tries to do is he tries to reduce the interest rate on the debt by essentially turning the bonds into shares in a company. And he thinks bondholders will go for this because the state will pay them a certain guaranteed rate of interest, 2 or 3%. And they'll also have the profits of this huge monopoly company to top up their, um, their earnings. So it's it's an extraordinary scheme, and he al- he almost pulls it off. What, what's really interesting for me about law and the way he figures into my story is that law also has a peace plan. He thinks his what he calls it his system. He, he thinks his system is going to settle the future peace of Europe. Um, there, there are a couple of reasons why he thinks this. One is shifting to paper money means you don't have to compete with the Dutch and the British to control the markets of Spanish America anymore. Right, so the 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 you know one of the major stakes of conflict in the previous war suddenly doesn't matter anymore. Um, the, the the other reason he thinks that his system is going to lay the foundation for peace is that he thinks it's going to turn France into a kind of commercial superstate, but it's going to become a kind of benign hegemon. 
with absolutely no interest in conquering its neighbors, its prosperity is assured, its security is assured, um, and it, it will go back to being back to its proper position as a kind of arbiter of European politics. But it will it will create a kind of hegemony that other powers will be happy to live with because it won't threaten them. So it's it's really an extraordinary moment, uh, and um, this peace plan dimension of laws. Um, Laws thinking is something that I, I think we didn't, you know, we didn't really understand before. How, how did Enlightenment thinking affect the debate over the two nations' relationship? You also mentioned a book, the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher David Hume, who voices his opposition to the expansion of the British Empire. Want to just uh, tell us a little bit about that? Sure, Hume is. Um, Hume is one of the most important and influential influential Enlightenment uh, thinkers in this period, and he is he is absolutely committed to the idea that the, this these series of wars between Britain and France have been disastrous for Britain, uh, and he is his his central political sort of desire is to end the rivalry and to. Uh, recast European politics on a more on a, on a more peaceful basis. H- Hume is probably the 18th century thinker who is most worried about public debt. Um, he has a he has an almost apocalyptic view of the consequences of debt for Britain. Uh, he sees the the debt growing quickly. He imagines it's going to continue to grow fast in the future, and he thinks that eventually um, the the debt is going to swamp the Britain's economy and perhaps even destroy its constitution. So he's deeply committed to the idea of getting Britain off its addiction to public credit. And he understands, as everyone does, that the only way to do that is to make a permanent peace with the French. So Hume is uh, one of the people who uh, is an early proponent of free trade ideas. Um, and he sees them very much as, a, as, as having the potential to create the basis for a much happier relationship with France in the future. He's also bitterly opposed to the expansion of Britain's empire in this period. Um, he calls William Pitt the Elder, who, who is uh, running Britain's war effort during the Seven Years' War. He, he describes him in one letter as that wicked madman. Um, so the, the, the direction that Britain's politics take in these decades is really the, the antithesis uh, of what Hume hopes uh, for uh, f- for Britain and what he works for both as an intellectual and as a diplomat. Um, it, Hume has an interesting side role uh, as a as a diplomat on on missions in the late 1740s at the end of the War of Austrian Succession and and again as the embassy secretary in Paris uh, at the end of the Seven Years' War, where he serves as uh, secretary of embassy for two years in 1763 to 65 and, and works there. To um, to produce a better understanding between the two countries. Now, how significant was the rise of organisations like the East India Company? I mean, did did they ever reach a point in which they rivaled the power of the state itself in the in the administration of um, Britain's colonies and its, by extension, its relationship with the French? Y- yes, uh, the, the the East India Company. Uh, the East India Company really until, well, certainly until 1773, but really until the 1780s, essentially has a free hand I- in India. It's it, to, to say that there is a British empire in India would, would be a misnomer. Um, there's an East India Company 
state, uh, which turns into an East India Company empire from the 1750s in, in Bengal. The, the, the East India Company is a, a sort of a quasi-autonomous geopolitical actor, and, and, and one with a fair bit of muscle uh, in this period. And one of the one of the interesting stories that 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 came up in in writing the book were efforts on the part of the East India Company and its French rival to make a deal with one another in India in beginning in the 1750s, and then they come back to the idea again in the 1770s and in the 1780s. Uh, the East India Companies, in a way, have an even harder time with war than the states do in this period. Um, th- th- these are these are entities that can't turn to taxpayers to foot the bill of their conflicts. It's the shareholders that have to pay, and the shareholders are not happy about that. So uh, the, the companies, the French and the British East India companies, are drawn into conflict with one another in India in the 1740s, and that's a conflict that continues after the end of the War of Austrian Succession into the early 1750s. Um, and it's a it is a conflict that's bad for their trade. Uh, and that um, causes share values to fall, and that um, threatens, you know, there's a potential for financial collapse uh, for either of these countries, uh, excuse me, companies uh, in the in in the future if they don't if they if they can't reduce their military costs in India. So in 1753, the two sides get together, and they they try to negotiate a deal, and the negotiations go on over about two years, from 1753 to 55. And the the original proposals are really extraordinary. They, they propose that instead of fighting one another in India, they should um, they should make peace and become allies of one another in the face of pressures from um, from Indian uh, powers. They argue that they should neutralize the whole zone east of the Cape of Good Hope, the entire Indian Ocean, and the Indian subcontinent, neutralize it completely from future Franco-British conflicts. So it's going to be a zone of relative peace and getting on with making money in commerce. They come close to a deal. Uh, There's a lot of, there's a lot of mistrust. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of difficulties to to be gotten over. Um, The the British government isn't having the idea of neutralizing the Indian Ocean. They want to be able, in the next war, they want to be able to use their naval power effectively. And so there's no way they're going to, you know, withdraw the the Royal Navy from, from those waters. Um, but they're, 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 both governments are very interested in the idea of a peace deal between the companies and ideally a permanent one. Uh, so there's a, there's a good bit of pressure for a deal. And they actually, they actually reach a kind of interim agreement that's signed by French and British officials in India and then sent back to Europe to be ratified. But just at that moment, um, the, the beginnings of the seven, year, seven Years' War start to break out in North America. Uh, there are clashes on the frontiers of British and French colonies, starting in 1754 into 1755, and that um, that destroys the prospects uh, for this provisional agreement getting getting ratified. But it's one of those interesting what if moments, you know, where you could have you can imagine um, the history of South Asia going in a quite a different direction um, if there hadn't been this uh, coincidence of of hostilities in North America and and uh, the effort to reach a treaty in India. The subline of your book is called Britain, France, and the 18th Century Quest for a Peaceful World Order. Now, given that this period ends with the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, can it be argued that the quest for a peaceful world order ended in abject failure? 
I, I think it could be argued that that it, that it did. Uh, I, I did choose the word quest quite deliberately, a sort of arduous and often unsuccessful uh, search for something. Um, it, it kind of depends on where you stop the clock. You know, if you stop the clock in 1793 or, or 1803 or, or, or 1814, then yeah, it looks like an abject failure. But if you if you continue the story out into the 19th century, what you see is that um, the Franco-British relationship is radically different after 1815 than it was before, and that it takes really precisely the form that the 18th the people in the 18th century who were pushing for a different relationship it takes precisely the form that they advocated, based on f- much freer trade, um, based on uh, the opening of of one's empire to the trade of the rival. Uh, the British are much better about this than the French are, but it matters far more because the British Empire is much larger. Um, based on collaboration in certain imperial settings. So, for example, the French and the British um, uh, collaborating with one another to force open Chinese markets in the Second Opium War and in and various other uh, places around the, the globe across the 19th century. So uh, we can see that the logics that are working themselves out in Franco-British relations in the 18th century really come to maturity um, in the 19th. And that the kind of relationship, one that's still kind of relentlessly rivalrous, but doesn't involve geopolitical, doesn't doesn't involve actual war anymore. That's exactly what we get in the 19th century. But even if we want to say that in the 18th century, this this project was a failure, it's still, it's still worth looking at in 18th century terms, uh, it seems to me. If, if there were just one or two moments where the French and the British were trying to change the fundamental character of their relationship, you could dismiss them as sort of anomalies or uh, flashes in the pan. But this happens over and over and over and over again. I mean, there, there, there are a dozen of these moments and they, they all take a similar form and people are using the same language on, on, on both sides in every case. And I, I think when we see that kind of, of distinct pattern, we have to conclude that there's a sort of a, there are structural pressures operating here, shaping the relationship. And in the 18th century, mostly they're not quite strong enough to prevail. They do prevail here and there, but mostly they're not quite strong enough to prevail. But they did prevail in the 19th century. Um, and in the 18th century, we, we can't understand, we can't understand the, the, the framework of decision making if we can't see that this was an option and an option to which they were always thinking about. Uh, even if they ultimately uh, chose conflict or felt they were pushed into conflict, uh, you know, uh, as the dominant mode of interaction with the other side. Finally, John, recently, uh, countless column inches have been dedicated to the spectre of a trade war between the West and China. And there is recurring talk of a, a, a new Cold War. What can the 18th century teach us about great power rivalry in the 21st century? I, I think it can teach us um, something that we had forgotten for a long time or, 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 or not given much consideration to, which is that um, capitalism can be very destabilizing uh, for the international order. And that for all, for all the desire and goodwill to reach agreements, um, those agreements can be very difficult to, 
they can be very difficult difficult to reach and very difficult to uh, to preserve. I I I think we we might be at an inflection point uh, in world politics. You know, if you think about the period from 1945 to the to the present, uh, we've lived in the kind of world that was imagined by these 18th century peacemakers. A world in which, let's call it geoeconomics, has replaced geopolitics, where states slog it out against one another, but they mostly do it on the terrain of uh, of trade and, and investment, um, rather than um, rather than, than than fighting wars against one another. And that's been possible in part, I think, because of American uh, dominance, and uh, and in part because uh, we have worked out a system where states. Uh, protect and manage their trade under a regime that everyone has kind of agreed to um, under WTO rules, right? And it's it's kind of a mutual non-aggression pact, right? I won't do this to you if you don't do this to me. Um, and that's that's worked out pretty well as a way to keep the peace. I mean, yeah, it's full of inequities and injustices, especially for developing countries. But if you compare it to what we had between 1914 and 1945, or what we had before 1815, it looks it looks pretty good. We seem to be at a point where there's a growing skepticism about that regime for organizing international trade, where privileged states, states that have massively benefited uh, over the last 70 years, are have become really skeptical that this is that this is the best deal for them, and where you see a real willingness, a new willingness to shake things up uh, and to change the ground rules. I, I think I think you see some of this in Brexit. I, I think you see it very much in U.S. trade policy towards China, uh, you know, under the Trump administration and now, and now continuing under the Biden administration. So we could be heading to a future. It looks like we're heading to a future where states, again, will competitively organize the the protection of their foreign trade and investment. And we could imagine this in the form of competing blocks, a US-centered block and a China-centered block. That that was a recipe in the past for profound conflict over trade. Uh, and not just trade wars, but much worse than that. Now of of course we you know we 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 live in different circumstances to those of the early 20th century or the 18th century. We live in a world with uh, weapons of mass destruction, which enormously increase the potential costs of war. So it's hard to know, you know, where this is headed. But the prospect of renewed conflict over trade, and and not just, um, you know, not not just conflict over tariffs or investment over, or, or or technology, but um, actual shooting wars, it's not it's not far fetched to think that's out there in the future. That was John Shovlin. His book, Trading with the Enemy, Britain, France and the 18th Century Quest for a Peaceful World Order is out now published by Yale. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us again on Friday when I'll be speaking to Bronwyn Everall about the Benin Bronzes. <laughs>